So, as we get rolling here, I want you to think back to that point in your childhood. For a lot of us, this is, this, it felt like a shock. It felt like a wondrous thing. It felt like a horrible time. But that time, sometime in childhood, where you realized that other families do things differently than your family does. Right? You remember that time? For some of us, it's you, you went to the friend's house and their mom made sandwiches for you and they cut them wrong. You know, instead of cutting them diagonally like they're supposed to be cut, the mom cut them straight across, which is like, I don't even know what to do with that. Or they make peanut butter and jelly, and instead of putting the jelly on one piece of bread and the peanut butter on the other like it's supposed to be, they put peanut butter on both pieces of bread. It's like, I don't even know what this is. Or you went in to go to the bathroom and looked at the toilet paper, and it's like, oh my gosh, what is this? What, what is happening? So, so for me, here, my crisis point was when I was six, and I went down the street to play with Billy Meehan, and his mom was going to make macaroni and cheese for lunch for us. So I loved macaroni and cheese. My mom wasn't a fan of cooking, and so things that were easy, we tended to have a lot. And so we had macaroni and cheese probably a couple nights a week. We had a couple of other repeaters that I won't eat now because we used them up in my childhood. But, um, but that, I just love that. And so at Billy's house, when his mom said she was making macaroni and cheese, I was stoked. I was really excited. But I was a little worried because I didn't see the saucepan on top of the stove for the macaroni. And, and I, I'm like, what's she going to do? But I trusted her. We went on and played. And then she calls us in. And she says, it's ready. And there's still nothing on the stovetop. And I'm, I'm bewildered. It's like, because, you know, macaroni and cheese is you, you cook it you boil it in a pot, and then you open up the envelope, and you pour in the stuff and, and the butter and, and a little bit of milk, and you mix it together. That's macaroni and cheese. And instead, she pulled out out of the oven. And I'm like, I'm, my six-year-old brain is just going, what is this? Meat comes out of the oven, not macaroni and cheese. And she pulls out this, this and, it's, and it's like brown on top. It has breadcrumbs. And I'm just like... What, what is this? And she's like, I knew you loved macaroni and cheese, and this is why I made it, and it was all I could do to not say this out loud. Why does this woman hate me? What has she just done? I just, I just couldn't believe it, because as I knew, this is what macaroni and cheese looked like, right? So why did I think one was the proper macaroni and cheese and the other wasn't? was expectations. So today is our second week of, of talking together in a series that we're calling What's That? And it's finding God in the unfamiliar, the unexpected, and the impossible. So today we're going to talk about how our expectations can actually hold us back from what God wants to show us and give us, and it can really hold us back from literally being the people that God wants us to be. So you can see the obvious point here. I mean, I have since, I've continued to be a macaroni and cheese fan, and, and now I will make macaroni and cheese like Billy Meehan's, Meehan's mom made and like it, and I actually prefer it a little bit more to the craft out of the box 
stuff. Um, but to my six-year-old mind, I just didn't know that that was possible. My expectations, the, this unexpected macaroni and cheese, it was great. It was so good. And I had no idea because it just wasn't what I was used to. And I want to suggest again that there are so many things in our lives that God wants to do that for us. He wants to give us a gift. He wants to build a thing into our life that we have not experienced before, that is just outside of our expectation, that it's not the good thing that we had before, but something new, and we just can't see it. We're just not ready for it. That our expectations will frame what we can receive from God and actually put a barrier between us and Him. And we're going to talk about how to get past that. Moreover, what's even harder is sometimes our expectations will hold us back from what we can expect for ourselves, that we have an understanding of who we are and what's possible in our lives that's based on what's happened, on the failures that we've had, on the gifts that we have, and we just know that we have a range, you know, that there's a, there's a range. Like if you play golf and you know that there's a possible range that you're going to shoot, and if you're a 90s shooter, you just know you're not going to shoot in the 70s. That's just, just how it goes. And most of us have reached a point in our life where we kind of know how things go in our lives, and we kind of know who we are and how it's going to go. But again, I want to suggest to you that when the Lord is at work in our lives, He's willing and able and desperate to do something beyond what we expect in our lives. So, started with a food metaphor. Because this is a food metaphor from the Bible. This is Isaiah 55, and if you want to follow along on your device or in a dead tree Bible, you'll find Isaiah um, just past halfway in your Bible. It's just before Ezekiel and just after, I should know this and I don't. Anyway, <laughs> it's, it's, it's right there in the middle. It's a big book. It's not that hard to find. So here's, here's, here's what the Lord is saying, and he is... It, if you read this in the original languages, the first thing he actually says is, ho, which is Hebrew for yo, hey, or something like that. The translators didn't catch it. But he is posing like a street vendor who's selling something, trying to get people to do that. Um, you guys eaten from street vendors along the way? I'm, I'm a big fan of the bacon-wrapped hot dogs you get outside of uh, soccer matches. Those are great. And I've eaten off enough iffy places over the year. I never get sick. Other people get sick from those. I, ne I never do. So it's kind of awesome. Bad habits occasionally pay off. So this is the Lord speaking to his people, okay? And he says this. He says, come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Now, why is the Lord doing this? You know, this is the only place in the Bible where the Lord takes on the persona of a street vendor. So it's, it's not a common metaphor. The Lord is my street vendor, I shall not want. You know, that, there's no psalms like that, okay? But what he's doing here is he's really trying to shake the people up. So in context, here's what's happening. This latter part of Isaiah, from 40 on, is aimed at the people of Israel after their biggest failure. You know, if you know the story, they, God called Abraham created a people. They went down to Egypt, became slaves there. The Lord saved them out of slavery in Egypt and brought them into the promised land. And then the, what drives the rest of the story is, will the people trust God enough to be able to stay in the land? Sadly, the story turns out that no, they're not. And first the northern half of the kingdom and then the southern half of the kingdom are destroyed. Most of the people die. Jerusalem is laid waste. 
And just a fragment of the people are hauled off to be slaves once again, not in Egypt, but in Babylon. So Isaiah, this latter part of Isaiah, is aimed at the people of Israel when they are returning from exile in Babylon, from having been slaves. They are returning back from their greatest failure to the site of their greatest failure. And so what the Lord is doing in this whole latter part of Isaiah is he's trying to give them a new vision for who they are. But right now, their sense of who they are, their expectations for what the Lord can do is almost entirely controlled by their experiences, by what they have done, by the way that they have failed, and by what has been done to them. I mean, these people are slaves, essentially. And they've just been freed from slavery, but they are now members of the Persian Empire. The Babylonians are gone, the Persians have shown up, and they're sending them back to their old territory. But they're not even going to be their own country anymore. They're just going to be a province in the Persian Empire. And it's really sad what they're coming back to here. And so that's why the Lord is saying, hey, wait a second, you guys. This is not a sad time. Come and let's, let's have a feast. Let's do something great. And he anticipates, it's like, we can't do a feast. We've lost everything. We're on the dole from the Persian Empire. We have no money for anything. We can't do anything. And I suspect a lot of us may be, to some degree at least, in, in a similar place. Where even if the Lord comes to us and says, hey man, I got something great for you. And you're just like, man, where I'm stuck right now, I can't even think about great. All I can think about is just a little bit better. Or maybe not even a little bit better. If I could just get back most of what I lost, that would be great. And the Lord is speaking to people like that when he says, come, buy, and eat. He gets, on, he gets better. He says, come and buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Guys, I'm giving it away. It's yours. And then he makes this other observation. He says, look, he says, you guys are working really hard. And you're working really hard for something that doesn't satisfy. You're working so hard to grab on to what you think is possible, to what your expectations tell you is yours, and it still doesn't do it. You're working so hard for bread that tastes terrible and wine that tastes bad. And milk that's, well, you know what happens to milk, right? And you're still not satisfied. And what he's essentially saying is he knows what's happening. These people are stuck in a world that's bound by scarcity and rivalry. They've been at war. They've been slaves. They've been in a place where there's been constant turmoil their entire life. And you know what that's like when you've been in a place of conflict, when you've been in a really hard place for a while? Your expectations drop, right? Your sense of what's possible goes down. Again, it's just like, man, I don't even want a new good thing. I'll just be happy to get back a little bit of the decent thing that I lost. And then what happens even more is when you know things are scarce, when you know that there's just a limited amount of things it's like, I can't, it would be selfish for me, you know, that if there's only, you're having bananas and there's only four bananas and there's four people, it's selfish to want two, right? So when you're in a world of scarcity, just out of kindness, you lower your expectations. 
And what the Lord is saying is you guys have lived in a world of strife and you guys have lived in a world of scarcity for the last 40 years, but that time is over. Now that you are back in my hands, that time is done. And so again, that's why the Lord says, he says, look, stop working for things that, that don't satisfy. Instead, will you just receive from me the great thing that I want to give you? Why are you working for something that only gets you part of the way there when if you could just open your eyes to it, I am anxious to give you a life and give into your life things that are far beyond what you can imagine. But again, because the way our own power works, because we're only able to be managers, that's how we think. We think all I can do is just improve what I've got a little bit or take a little bit off of here and move forward. But as we talked about last week, the Lord is not a manager. He's a creator. And that's why the Lord can speak with confidence to the Israelites. Left to themselves, all they can do is work really hard for a little bit that will just kind of be okay. And left to ourselves, that's exactly where we're going to be. Some of us are lucky enough to be in a place where if we work really hard, it's rewarded and we get pretty awesome stuff. Some of us our circumstances, we work really hard and we don't get rewarded all that much along the way. But what the Lord is saying is when I am at work and when you join your story to my story, that there is something even bigger here because the Lord is not a manager. The Lord is a creator. And so the things he wants to give us, he can make them. That there, are, there is no scarcity and there is no strife when the Lord is at work. I ran across, uh, across a quote from um, Brian McLaren, um, who's a, a contemporary Christian author who I really like, and this is from his latest book. He talks about this, and he, he says, just try to get a hold of what he's saying here. He says, the biblical story dares us to believe that the universe is run by the logic of creativity, goodness, and love. Now, that's... A little hard to tell this week, you know, if you, um, if you live in Ferguson, Missouri, or Iraq, or Gaza, or you're somebody connected to Robin Williams, it's hard to believe that we are in a world that is run by the logic of creativity, goodness, and love, right? But that is the biblical story, and that's what God is posing as a street vendor to talk to his people that includes us to get a hold of and to be ready to accept. That the hard things of this world are not the limits of this world. And that God is at work beyond the limits of the world that we can control to create. That God is not a manager moving around scarce resources, but he is a creator who can make new things. And because of that, we live in a world that is if we will allow ourselves to be in it and to receive from it. We live in a world that is run by the logic of creativity, goodness, and love. And then McLaren finishes by saying, the universe is God's creative project. And to make this even better, I, I want to say that you are God's creative project. That each of us is God's creative project. Filled with beauty, opportunity, challenge, and meaning. 
Friends, that's not just happy talk. You know, that's not just, oh, that'd be really nice on a greeting card. That's a bare statement of fact. If you want to say, well, let's get real. What's real is Iraq and, and all of that. No, what's real is that the Lord and creator of the universe is at work right now and wants to be at work in your life right now to create beauty and opportunity and challenge and meaning. And what prevents him is just our willingness to do that. And again, it's very much like my unwillingness to go beyond Kraft macaroni and cheese when I was six put a barrier between me and great macaroni and cheese. That's silly, right? But no more silly than the barriers that we put between ourselves and the good life that God wants to give us. The Lord says, listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight, delight in the richest affair. It's not just, hey, try me and it'll be marginally better. What the Lord is telling us is that because of our expectations of what's good, because it's so hard for us to think of a good beyond the good we've already experienced, the Lord is saying to us, you guys, you are missing out. You're working so hard for stuff that just barely gets you through the day. And I want to give you a feast. I want to give you something that's great. But it's our expectations. The way that our past expectation of what's been good limits our sense of what the Lord can do, that we miss out on it. Another one of my favorite authors is C.S. Lewis. And um, he talks about a similar thing here. Let me... um, Let's look at this together. This is from his sermon, The Weight of Glory. Lewis says, If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, he says, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of Christian faith. I made a, tried to make a joke about Kant and the Stoics in the first service. I don't even think I got the joke, so I'll just leave that, I'll, I'll just leave that here, Okay. He's talking to a university audience at this point. Um, Not an American universe, but an English. He's at Oxford when he's doing this. Okay? But basically what he's saying is, one of the things we struggle with as God's people is the idea that wanting good things, wanting to be blessed, is somehow unchristian. Now, wanting to receive good things for me before you do, that's unchristian. For me, seeking your good ahead of my own good, that's unchristian. But wanting to be blessed, wanting to experience good is absolutely that. You know, Lewis goes on to say, he says, look, if you actually look at what the Bible is saying, he says, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, you know, the, the fact that the Bible is filled with places about how God wants to bless us, how he wants to give us good and beautiful lives, lives that we enjoy, lives that we enjoy. If we could just get a hold of that, it would seem the problem is not that our desires are too strong, but that they're too weak. So it's back to like the Lord was saying in Isaiah, why are you messing around? Why are you, why are you working so hard for something that doesn't satisfy? When I so desperately, when the Lord says, listen, listen, I want to give you something great. Lewis goes on and says, you know, really, if we think about it, we're half-hearted creatures. 
We fool around with drink and sex and ambition, you know, what we think are big things. And the problem is, it's not that they're big and they're too big for little church mouse people like us. The problem, Lewis points out, is that we mess around with things like drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. See, the problem with those things is not that they're too big or they're too much for us, it's that they're too little. When you compare them to the great thing that God wants to give us, why are you messing around with that? He says, we're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday by the sea. So you can be a child by the, in the slum. You could be a six-year-old boy who doesn't understand macaroni and cheese. Or you could be a person sitting in the sanctuary at 9851 Bixby at 11.40 a.m. Pacific Daylight Time on August 18th and be absolutely missing the best that God wants to do for you because all you can see right now is just a little bit better than I've got or to go back to what I once had before. And what God wants to be able to give us is far too much. And if, and if you're stuck with that idea, oh man, I don't know, that, that sounds selfish, that sounds too much, Lewis puts it great. He says, our problem is, is that we are far too easily pleased. And I want to suggest that that is where we're stuck. We are far too easily pleased. And the Lord pleads with us today, let me do something amazing. Let me give you something that is great. Let me give you the richest affair. Let me not just get, take the edge off your hunger. Let me give you something that is far better than you can imagine right now. The only barrier between us and that is our willingness to accept it, our willingness to open up our vision and open up our hearts enough that the Lord can do that. There's no qualification, oh, you have to have so many levels of good Christian stuff before he can do that? No, the Lord is anxious to do that for each and every one of us. Regardless of our story, regardless of where we are right now, the Lord wants to do good things for us. So do you let him? So our expectation, don't let your expectations limit what God can do in your life, okay? And then, the next thing that we want to look at is the idea that our expectations of ourselves hold us back that our experiences, that we look at who we are, and we are so formed by our experiences that it's almost impossible for ourselves to see ourselves as God sees us. That our sense of self-awareness, our, our sense of who we are, our sense of identity, is usually an accumulation of things that we've done and things that we didn't do. It's our successes, it's our ambitions, it's also our failures. It's the ways that we've hurt other people and the ways that other people have hurt us. So our sense of who we are right now is a balance of all of those things. And maybe you're lucky enough to have just the kind of mind and heart that you can be accurate about that, but most of us aren't. And we tend to overweighting some of those aspects and underweighting some of them. Most of us, it's we put way too much weight on our failures and not nearly as much weight on some of the other good things that are about who we are. But regardless of that, here's what I want you to think about right now, is that this fact, and this is, this is a true fact, as they say in some parts of the world, that you are not who you think you are. You are not who you think you are. Now, in some narrow constraints, 
that's a fairly good thing because it helps people be ambitious. It helps them do things that they wouldn't have thought otherwise. Um, I remember reading um, about a guy who used to sign rock bands back when that happened. And um, he was a record company guy that would sign rock bands. And he said when he went to see them in clubs, he wouldn't look at how well they were playing or how well the, the crowd was responding to them. But when he saw a band playing in a crowd of 80 people in a tiny club, he says, I would sign the bands that even though they were playing in front of 80 people, it looked like they thought they were playing in front of 15,000 people. Because those were the guys I signed. And it was rock bands, so it, you know, it didn't matter as much. <laughs> Especially in the era I came up. I was, I was driving down Sunset to have breakfast with a friend in West Hollywood on Friday and going past some of the places I used to see punk rock shows back in the early 80s. And still feel the buzzing in my ears just driving by there. Um, and, and then occasionally that kind of unself-awareness can help too. Um, we've had cats as pets, and we had one particular cat, Spike, who, who was a fighter, and his lack of self-awareness was really effective in this because he would go out and, and try to take on skunks and then get blasted by the skunk and suffer, but it was, it was amazing to watch him. I, I could totally read his mind on this. Every time he got blasted by a skunk, he went away not thinking, wow, that was a bad idea. He went away thinking, that skunk was lucky. <laughs> next time, next time he's mine. Next time he's mine. So, so that kind of stuff can, can help us in some narrow circumstances. But most of the time, who we really think we are doesn't help us out a whole lot. This is, this is more real. This, this came across my, this is a guy I follow on Twitter. This came across this week. Have you had this experience? Somebody comes up to you and they say, hey, you are so fun. I'm so glad we're friends. That's what they say to you. And then internally, you're like, yeah, give it time. Wait till you really know me. You know? I mean, I used to work with a guy. We'd leave on Friday out of the warehouse we were working in. The boss would compliment it. You guys did a great job. And He'd walk out and just mutter. Yeah, we fooled him again. Most of us, our sense of who we are doesn't help us. We put way too much emphasis on the bad things, the failures, the bad stuff that's been done to us. Far too little emphasis. Or occasionally we put way too much emphasis on the things that are good about us, but it's just us. But what we miss along the way is who God is and who God wants us to be. And so if we're really going to have the proper expectations here, if we're going to find God in the unexpected, the best unexpected here is to discover and hold on to who God thinks you are. And if you can match up your story with that, that your sense of who you are can begin to match up with who God knows who you are and who God is making you to be, that is completely and utterly transformative. Let me tell you a story about a, a guy in the Bible to whom this happened. Um, Matthew, of the book of Matthew, and of Jesus' disciples. So the story begins. You, you guys know, know how it went. Jesus shows up, and he starts calling these guys to be his disciples. He calls 12 guys to be his disciples. They're like his inner circle. He had about 120 other people, men and women, that followed him, and were also disciples, but there were the 12 that were sort of the key guys. 
And it was sort of, Jesus is doing things relative to Israel's history, so he's like creating a new people of God. Israel had 12 tribes, so he had 12 disciples as a way to kind of start over with a new people of God. So one of the guys he calls is this guy, Matthew, and here, this is his call story, where he says, Jesus went there from there, and where he's coming from there is this amazing healing that he's just done, where Jesus has just done a stunning healing, and so everybody is thinking, man, God is clearly with Jesus. Wherever Jesus is going, this is how the Lord is working. And Jesus arrives, and he sees this man, Matthew, sitting in the tax collector's booth. He's sitting in the tax collector's booth because it's his booth, because he's a tax collector, okay? And Jesus says, follow me. And he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. Now, Outside of the context of this story, it's easy to think, well, that's what people do in the Bible. Jesus says, follow me, and I would never do something like that where I'd drop everything and follow him. That's kind of crazy, but people do that in the Bible, so it makes sense, right? Bible people do Bible things, so that, that happens. <laughs> in context, though, this is really a stunning episode. So you guys might remember that at this time, God's people, the Jews, are under, they don't have their own country. They are under Roman occupation. And the Romans are not very friendly occupiers. So the key things that they had to do, you had to be loyal and you had to be taxed kind of heavily. And if you annoyed them, they would raise your tax level. And the people of Palestine had been especially annoying, so the tax levels were fairly high. Um, it was a way to, you know, it was, it, it, was the, it was an empire. And that's what these people were here to do, was to send wealth to Rome. To make it even worse, though, for the people, and this was how Matthew experienced this, the Romans were actually pretty smart about this. Rather than sending a Roman to collect the taxes, what they would do is they would hire local people who would be willing to collect taxes on the Romans' behalf with the power of the Romans behind them. So if you didn't comply with what Matthew was telling you to do, Roman legionnaires would show up at your door and bad things would happen along the way. And then to make it even worse, instead of paying them a salary, they were, they, this was actually called tax farming, where the tax collectors could collect as much money as they could wring out of the people and keep anything over what the Romans had assessed. And so if a particular village had a 500 denarius levy every quarter, if you as the tax collector could drag 1,000 denarii out of the village, good for you. You kept 500, sent 500 to Caesar, it was all good. So these guys were viewed, tax collectors were viewed as traitors to the people. And even, even worse, I mean, there was a whole moral level that in our culture, maybe somebody who makes child pornography or something like that, that's the level that we're talking about here of what Matthew was. Now, notice what Jesus does here, though. Jesus doesn't look at who Matthew is and he doesn't look at who Matthew thinks he is. But Jesus looks at who Matthew, he knows who Matthew can be and who he is if Jesus has a hold of him. Knowing all of this about Matthew, don't you think Jesus probably should have talked with him for a while? And, hey, you've been a tax collector and that's really bad. I'd like you to be one of my disciples, but we need to talk through some things first to make sure you're really going to be on track. You notice he doesn't do any of that here? Jesus just walks up and says, follow me. And Matthew got up and followed him. 
There's something really powerful about the call of Jesus to come into our lives like that, where Jesus is speaking not to who we think we are, but who he knows we are. And he's doing that with Matthew as well. There's a fascinating painting that was done um, earlier. It's by a guy named Caravaggio, which what I know about Caravaggio is his name was Caravaggio. (laughs) Dinner last night, my son said, oh, he led a really interesting life. He murdered a guy, and I'm like, wow, okay. Um, But this painting is called The Calling of St. Matthew, and and I wanted you to look at it kind of carefully. And so that's why it's also in your worship folder. We give you Renaissance masters as well as tap dancers and hammered dulcimer players here at Living Spring. And donuts between services as well. We try to do a lot. So this is the painting. Um, So this is Jesus here, okay? Um, This guy is apparently not wearing pants. I'm not quite sure why. But I think they're tights, actually, yeah? Anyway, I hope. Um, <laughs> but notice the two guys on the left. One of the, one of the things about this painting that's really interesting is, is people have debated this ever since Caravaggio painted this. Which one's Matthew? It's clear who Jesus is. He's the guy pointing with the chin strap beard. But which one is Matthew? There's generally two candidates, right? There's the guy saying, who me? Or, and then there's the guy that's just like this. So, and I think what Caravaggio was doing was he was really wanting us to reflect on exactly that. What would it mean if Jesus came up to you and said, hey, follow me right now. No delay. Follow me. Would your response be, who, me? Or would your response be just to put your face down in your hands? Because you can't imagine anything why. Both of those men in that story, if Jesus is calling one or, one or the other, in either one, those are two portrayals of a guy who is completely stuck in his own version of who he is, who still thinks, I'm who I think I am, and that's all who I am. But the good news in this story and the good news in our own lives is that Jesus is desperate to be more than that. That right now, the good news here, friends, is that you are who God thinks you are. That you are not the sum of your successes and your failures. You are not the sum of the hurts that you've meted out and the hurts that have been done to you. Who you are in your deepest sense is who God thinks you are, that you are his son, that you are his daughter, that you are, as Paul puts in Colossians, that God didn't stop choosing people when Jesus chose 12 disciples. He continues to go on, and that even right now, each of us, if we're just willing to accept it, are God's chosen people. If we're willing to say yes, that we are his chosen people because you are, as he puts here, dearly loved. It's not God is making compromises and this is the best he can do, but that each of us are dearly loved. Or as Peter puts it later on in 1 Peter, he says, but you, you guys are a chosen people. 
And then he goes on to say what in their context was a list of really awesome things. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that there is nothing more important to God than you, than me, than the person two rows against you, than the woman in the first service whose phone went off and she took the call during the service. None of us, all of us are his treasured possession. That is who we are, not who we can be, not who we would wish we would be, not if we had a better life, that's how we would have been. That is who you are. You are his treasured possession so that together we may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. So friends, what are you going to do? What are you going to do with this? Here's what I would suggest again. Don't miss out on what God has for you. Stop letting your expectations for what God can do in your life be determined by what's happened in the past or just an increment on what you can do now. Stop being so easily pleased. Be ambitious for what God can do in your life. And in addition to that, don't let your life be determined by who you think you are, but step into the life that God has for you and start being who God thinks you are. Thank you.